If you have a Bible, I invite you to take it to the book of Ephesians again. We're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 6 again, verse 13 through 17, as we continue in our series, The Invisible War. Here's what we read in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13 through 17. Therefore put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation. We want to look at that this morning. This helmet of salvation, the headgear of the Roman soldier. Let's pray. Lord, it seems such a timely day for us to have a message that talks about the defense you give to give us hope. Lord, as we wrestle with things feeling out of control, We thank you for the hope of the gospel. We thank you for the hope that is offered to us through the gospel from the God who gives us that gospel. And Lord, I pray that you would teach us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. If you ever go into a hockey game, a professional hockey game in particular, you know that when a a goal is scored, there's a red light that goes on. Typically in arenas, they'll also have a loud horn that will go off. And that red light going off on the back of the goal means a goal has been scored. Jacques Plant, who is also known as Jake the Snake, he was an all-pro, all-star goalie of days gone by from the Montreal Canadiens, would often do in his uh, post-career talks a discussion about his career, and he would often talk about his playing career in these terms. He said this, how would you like it in your job if every time you made a small mistake, a red light went on over your desk, and 15,000 people stood up and yelled at you? Perspective. He says it gives us perspective. And this morning, we're talking about perspective. We're talking about the perspective that is attacked and assailed by Satan as he tries to to impact our thinking. I want to remind you what we've looked at as we've looked at this series. And in this series, we've, we've talked about the fact that we have a unique role as believers in this spiritual warfare. There are two things that are involved. First of all, we are told that it is a warfare that is defensive for us. That we are being attacked, and the word that's continually used about our role in the spiritual conflict is to stand. Stand, stand. Seven times it says it here, that we are to stand our ground. Secondly, we are not given the option to use the enemy's weapons back at them. We don't throw the flaming arrows back. We don't, we don't use hatred and cruelty. We don't retaliate with lies. We respond a different way. Our goal is not offensive primarily. It is preeminently a defensive role that we have. Spiritual warfare is not us storming the fortress of hell. It is primarily a defensive battle where God's children stand their ground 
in the midst of accusation, temptation, persecution, and hardship. God is the one who moves mountains. God is the one who turns nations to himself, who works mighty miracles. Our primary calling in this invisible war is to stand against the onslaught of Satan. It is why William Gurnall, a Puritan, wrote what is still known as the classic description of um, spiritual warfare. I am trying to find my reading glasses, and I don't know what I did with those things. Ah, there they are. Found them. And in this classic description, William Gurnall says this in the book, The Christian in Complete Armor. The believer overcomes his enemy when he himself is not overcome. That we stand and, and, and we are given armor to help us to stand. Now, what are some of the attacks that are brought against us? Well, lies and deceit come. We are given a belt of truth. Accusations, shame, condemnation are used to discourage us. We are given the breastplate of Jesus' own righteousness, as we've talked about before. Worry and anxiety come, and yet we are given the sandals of the gospel of peace. And we stand in the readiness of, those, of that peace. Last time we looked at the flaming arrows of Satan, which are designed to, to strike fear and terror in us. And we are given the shield of faith, and this morning... We are assailed with the attack of despair and hopelessness, and we are given the helmet of salvation. Now, this particular piece of the armor, the the headgear that the, the Roman soldier would wear that is now put into the spiritual armor, is talking about protecting our minds, our heads. It is to protect our thinking, to shape our perspective on ourselves, on God, and on our circumstances. God gives us a helmet to protect us. And he tells us a little more about this helmet in, in another passage of Scripture. In 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul calls it this way, and the hope of salvation as our helmet. That the hope, that, the, that when he says the helmet of salvation, it's actually the hope of our salvation that is our defense in our thinking. And it is that which is assailed. So I'd like to talk simply this morning about, first of all, the characteristics of the helmet of hope. First of all, it it protects your head. As I said that, it's the headgear. Uh, Head wounds were usually fatal. It was very important to have an effective headgear. If you were wounded in your head, you were either killed or certainly incapacitated for further fighting. The head is the source of our thinking and our processing. It's where our perspective is. Satan is trying to get into your head. He's doing it all the time. He's trying to affect and and shape your thinking and and your, your perspective of life. And this helmet is given. And what is the helmet? The hope of salvation. Now, the word hope, of course, is, is, is looking at, at, at an expectation of positive outcomes. I look at heaven, and I have hope that something good's going to happen. There's going to be a positive outcome. The opposite of hope is the word despair. Strikingly, the word despair is actually a Latin of Latin derivation, and it's from two words, the word de, D-E, which means um, uh, uh, down from or out of or away from. And the word sperar, which is the word that is hope. 
It means that you've moved away from, you, you've come away from, you've been, you've been separated from hope. That's what despair is. You have no confidence of positive outcomes. And that's exactly what the helmet is given to help us fight against. It is the hope of our salvation that is our antidote to despair. It protects our head, but what the helmet of hope does for us also is it points your thinking towards God. Psalm 43 verse 5 says it this way. The psalmist is talking to himself and he says, Why are you so downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. For I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. That's an interesting phrase. He he says, put your hope in God. What, What does that mean? To put your hope in God. Well, it means that we determine to let God be the one that defines what is true. That we, that we determine to evaluate life, not on the basis of the other voices speaking into us, but what we know to be true about God and what he says is true about ourselves and our lives. To hope in God means that we are listening to him. That we are allowing our thoughts to be shaped by him. Now we listen in on this guy and, and this author of the Psalm 43, 42 and 43 is saying, he, he's actually having a conversation with himself. He's preaching at himself and he says, why are you so discouraged? Why are you so despairing? Why are you so, why are you so downcast? He says, hope in God. He says, you, you, you're looking at life apart from God. You're letting other circumstances, other voices control you. You're acting as if God does not exist. You're acting as if your future is not in God's hands. You're acting as if God is not involved. You're acting as if you don't know that you will be praising God again once you get beyond these circumstances. And so the psalmist says, Put your hope in God because you will yet praise him. To hope in God means that we evaluate life and our thinking in the context of a God who is as he describes himself to be. Jeremiah 17 says it this way, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord whose hope is in him. He'll be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It it does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. Now, here's what happens. Satan comes at us, and he comes at us hard, doesn't he? You're tired. You're overcome. You're discouraged. You're helpless. And Satan comes and, and says, you got no hope. There's nothing to look forward to. You don't have the resources necessary for what's coming. You can't overcome these circumstances. And we do what the Puritans used to talk about, where they used to talk about a a practice called practical atheism. They were talking to people that believed in God, that could recite the, the creeds, but their behavior and their thinking was as if God didn't exist. Now, before we start castigating those people, know that we do that all the time. Every time we're worried and consumed with with hopelessness, we are practical atheists. 
We are, we are evaluating life as if God is not who he says he is and is not involved in the way he says he will be. And so the psalmist says what the helmet of salvation is designed to do is to help us hope in God. That the gospel and bringing us into a relationship with Jesus Christ offers us this hope that we can hope in God. Because we have embraced and been embraced by Jesus Christ, we have the hope that life isn't out of control, that there is a God that is superintending, sovereignly working, no matter how chaotic life is, no matter how out of control things seem. This hope also points your thinking toward heaven. The largest emphasis of the term hope in the New Testament is actually referring to the life to come. It does talk about hoping in God, but it particularly talks about our hope is in a world to come. For many of us in Western Christianity, we have little reality of the role of this hope. It becomes more real to us with the loss of each loved one who goes beyond and, and, and is now waiting for us in heaven. It becomes more real to us as we get older and we become more infirm and we begin to see that, that we're, we're well over the halfway mark. But for many of our brothers and sisters around the world, heaven is the hope. It is a living hope regardless of age for young people and, and, and young adults as well as for the elderly it's a living reality, and this is what Paul is talking about when he says we can have this hope. There's a striking uh, document that was written back in 130 A.D. It's called Mathetes, which means uh, disciples, and it was actually written to describe Christians. And Christians were, were, there's a lot of suspicion by Roman governors wondering who Christians were and what were they like. And so this, this author wrote in 130 A.D., this description of Christians, here's what he said. For the Christians are distinguished from other men neither by country, nor language, nor the customs which they observe, nor employ a peculiar form of speech, nor lead a life which is marked out by any singularity. And following the customs of the locals in respect to clothing, food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct, they display a wonderful and confessedly striking manner of life. Well, well what is it? Because he's saying they don't dress different. They don't talk different. Uh, they, they, they don't sound different. They, they don't have a secret vocabulary. They, they don't, they, 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 they eat what other people eat. They, they just seem like normal Joes. So what's different about them? It says this, they dwell in their own countries, but only as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, and yet they endure all things as if they were foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country, and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. What he goes on to say and what he is saying in that statement is this. They live as if this isn't their ultimate home. They, they live as if, yeah, they're, they're doing life here and they participate with the locals and, and they have friends and they go to entertainments and they, they eat dinner where everybody else and they buy their food in the same market. But their life perspective is different. This is not their destination. They are living for a world to come. 
okay, what are the results of this helmet of hope? Well, we find that there are three of them in the New Testament. There are three benefits of the helmet of hope. Number one, it gives energy to our lives. It says this in Proverbs 13, 12, hope deferred makes the heart sick. But when the desire comes, it's a tree of life. Dr. Aaron Beck is a psychiatrist and professor at the University of Pennsylvania. And he developed what is called the Beck Hopelessness Scale. This scale of 20 questions is used to determine a person's mental and emotional perception of their futures. It is actually a major indicator of suicidal tendencies in patients. In the Beck Hopelessness Scales, there are three things that are the three areas that they talk about. Number one is feelings about the future. Number two is loss of motivation. Number three are future expectations. Now, the reason I mentioned that, I was fascinated when I read this, because as I looked at that, here were these three elements. Feelings about the future. Number three, that's number one. Number three, future expectations. And the middle one is loss of motivation. And and I'm pointing this out because what he is pointing out is when people have feelings uh, that that are not positive about the future, when they are concerned about their future expectations, it will impact their motivation. And those that are are dark in their view of the future, those that are are fearful in, in the expectations, tend to be debilitated in their motivation. A spirit of hopelessness leads to feelings of demotivation and loss of energy. We all, we all get this. We all have those times when we just feel it, everything's terrible. There's no hope. We're utterly de-energized because we are utterly de-hoped. One of the things the practical outworking, when we are finding our hope in God and saying, things are dark. I mean, it's, it's scary. The, the, the evening news, watching online what's going on, my own culture where I am living, it's dark financially. Maybe I'm scared. There can be things that are utterly overwhelming to can lead to despair. But then we say, you know what? I can hope in God. God isn't thrown. He's not up there going, oh my goodness, COVID-19. I didn't see that one coming. Racial tensions. I never imagined this would strike in the Western civilization. We hope in God. We hope that ultimately that this world isn't our ultimate destination. But a second thing, putting our hope, embracing our hope is it frees us from the pull of the world. Titus 2 says this, verse 12 and 13, the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ. The world does not own us if we are living for a hope to come. No one imagined that Charles Dutton would have achieved anything. He spent many years imprisoned for manslaughter. But when someone talked to him years after he had gotten out of prison, this now famous Broadway and Hollywood 
actor was asked, what happened? I mean, how did that happen? You were in there for manslaughter. Your life was done. It was over. How did you get out and go on to this, this wonderful career? He made this statement when he was talking about prison. He said this, unlike the other prisoners, I never decorated my cell. He never viewed that this was his, his, his home. He never saw this as the end game, as where he was going to end up. That the reality for the Christian is, we're not as owned by the things of this world, the troubles of this world, the temptations of the world, say, you know, I'm not living for this. Uh, I don't have to hit my home run here. I don't have to hit the lottery life experience. I don't have to have things go the way because I'm not living for here. This is not my end game. The third thing it does is it empowers us to be able to endure suffering and loss. 1 Thessalonians 1.3 says this, We continue to remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope. In our Lord Jesus Christ. Your endurance that is inspired by your hope. Suffering and loss are able to be endured when we are people living in the reality of our hope. When our heads and our thinking, our minds are captivated by I, I have this hope. This is the hope that I embrace. Years ago, I heard a man speak. His name was Joseph Zahn. Joseph Zahn was a Romanian pastor. He's very, by his own description, by personality, he's a timid man. And he, when the, uh, the communist uh, persecution began to took, take place, he, he fled Romania. And to his disappointment and surprise, God told him, Joseph, I want you to go back and stand for me in Romania. Wanting to obey the Lord, he went and God gave him a life verse. It was not the life verse that he wanted. Here was the life verse. I am sending you as a sheep in the midst of wolves. And Joseph, I heard him speak and tell the story years ago. And he said, all I could think was a sheep surrounded by wolves. How can a sheep surrounded by wolves survive for five minutes? And yet that was the visual. God said, I'm sending you, as Jesus said to his disciples, I'm sending you as a sheep amongst the wolves. He went back and Joseph Zahn, by this point in his life, had come to a deep reality about his hope in God. He had come to realize that the thing that, had, that he felt was the greatest fear that anyone had that influences their lives more than anything else is the fear of death. That it says in Hebrews that it is the fear of death that keeps people in bondage their whole lives. That Satan's tool of enslavement in the fear of dying is, 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 is this sense, it is, it is a captivating thing and it leads people to despair. But he realized for him as a Christian, death meant heaven. So he went back to Romania expecting to die, willing to die, because this world was not his reward for being a follower of Christ. Heaven was. He began to preach and eventually over a few months was um, reported and he was incarcerated. 
And it began a series of daily uh, um, torture and beatings. They took place over six months almost every day. There was one particular major that was the primary person that was his um, torturer. And after this had been going on for quite a number of days, Joseph's son came in and they were all ready to begin the beatings. And he turned to the major and he said this. He said, Major, every morning before I see you, I pray for your salvation. And after weeks of this, the major kept him in the room, let the other guards go, and just said this, and he said it with amazement in his voice. He said, when I interrogate a man, I feel his hatred. He said, it is a delight for me to be with you. And Joseph, with a twinkle in his eye, said it wasn't as much a delight for me, but this, this mesmerizing strength of this timid man, and eventually when he was finally released, the major took him aside, and with tears in his eyes, he said to him, Joseph, I will miss you. Joseph's son went outside, and he said it was the greatest moment of his life. He said because he had not been overcome, he had stood He had not despaired in the face of the worst possible form of oppression and hardship and trial. He had stood his ground and been able to love. He did so because of his hope being that this was not his destiny. There was a hope beyond this world. The hope, the helmet of hope helps us to embrace suffering. It also helps us to embrace loss. A while back, I was watching a television show with my wife, Marianne. I say it like my wife, Marianne, like I have two. Uh, My wife. And we were watching, and it was an emotional show, and actually the, the wife died and it really got me <laughs> and I didn't say anything at the time although I was pretty broken up and and I thought about it I thought about it a long time and my theology is that I don't believe it says that will not be given in marriage in heaven however I do know this Whatever degree we know each other here, we're going to pick up at that point in heaven. And there's nobody I know better than my wife. There's nobody that knows me better than Marion. And as I thought about the fact that I could lose her sometime, I went to her and I, I said, I said, you know, babe, and I got all emotional, but I said, you know, babe, I can't wait to be in heaven with you. I can't wait to have all eternity for us to just pick up where we've started and do life together. I don't look forward to a day when we're separated, but I know what's going to carry me is my hope 
that this is not our home. This is not where it ends. It's where it starts. The hope of the gospel is real. And some of you out there now are just saying, it's so true. When you've got loved ones and they're vested there and they're waiting, this is the hope of the gospel. That this world is, is, it's not that big. It's not that important. It's not that long. It empowers us to endure suffering and say, I want to have my life count while I'm here. All right, quickly. The employment of the helmet of hope, and I'm just going to zip through some principles. Number one, if you want to employ the helmet of hope and really live out of the hope and have your minds protected by the the hope of salvation, number one, you you have to be meditating on God's word. Romans 15 says it this way, verse 4, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Where do we get hope? The encouragement of the scriptures. It's the greatest gift we can give to one another is just to, to share God's word with each other at times. Second thing I would suggest is, is this phrase is not unique to me, but I like it. It is the phrase breath prayers. Use breath prayers of Scripture. Breath prayer is just what it sounds like. It's a prayer that you can pray with one breath. It's a, it's, it's a statement of Scripture. I, I've begun to accumulate these over the last few years. There are certain statements of Scripture that I just, in a moment of time, in a situation, will just, will just express to God. Here are some of mine. I mean, you'll have your own. Romans, I'm not going to give you all the references. Romans 8 is the first one. There's no, there's no condemnation to them in Christ. And I'm feeling accused and beat up and condemned and the, and the voice of shame. There is no condemnation to those in Christ. There are other breath prayers. I am of more value to you than the birds of the air. He says that in Matthew 6. You delight to show mercy, Micah chapter 5. The batter belongs to you, Lord, Second Chronicles You will never leave me or forsake me. Hebrews 13, you're a shield around me. You delight in those who hope in your unfailing love. You make a way to escape. You're my guide forever and ever. These are just breath prayers, but they become a part of our very psyche. They become our helmet when you're in circumstances and all of a sudden, the Lord just reminds you again of that truth that you've placed there. And just with with, with one breath, you say, Lord, the battle belongs to you. I can't do this. God, you've said you're my guide forever and ever. I don't know what to do. Get some breath prayers. Get some scriptures that just become your your words to, to, to echo back in the midst of situations and see if you do not find hope. Third, when the attack comes. Third, recall past mercies of God. This is, I'm always encouraging people, and guys especially, because guys are terrible at it, but journal, 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 journal. Write it down. You don't even know what's going on inside of you until you write it down. Take time, make time. I don't have time to journal. I think if you started it, you would realize you don't have time not to journal. You can't afford not to. Recall past mercies, and then every month or every three months, go back and just be amazed at what God has done. Number four, have a living theology of heaven. This is not your home. I mean, if if your boss came to you and said, in two months, 
We're relocating you to South Africa. We're going to make it worth your while. We're sweetening the pot. We're going to double your salary. You know all this. It's a beautiful place. You know, you'll love it. And what would you do the next two months? You'd become an expert on South Africa, right? You know everything about it. Well, you got a home. Find out everything you can. When our son drowned years ago, Marion read 70 books on heaven. I did not read that many. I, I read a number of the ones she recommended. But I'm in heaven became something to us it never become before. Because our boy was there. Well, it's our home. Get familiar with it. Get a living theology of imagining what it's like. If you want some recommendations, I'll be glad to give you some. And lastly, get rest and solitude. Vince Lombardi, that great theologian of the Green Bay Packers, said it best. Exhaustion makes cowards of us all. Some of you are just way too tired. You're exhausted. You're beat. Well, your helmet is just, I mean, it's, it's barely on. Because you're just, there's a, there's a thousand other thoughts that, that are coming to your mind if you're exhausted that are going to be hard to fight off. Some of what we just need to do is just be still, find some solitude, get some good, real rest. It's a part of putting the helmet of hope on and having it guide our thinking. Remember, with this I'll close, talking with Doug and Karen Bradley, missionaries to France, and now she's up uh, involved, one of the leaders of crew ministries to the United Nations. Remember, we're sitting with Doug and Karen. They actually were missionaries to the Middle East, but they were living at the time in France. And they said, you know, it's an interesting thing. And they were life, they'd been growing up in America, but they said, you know, we've come to realize it is true. And many people say this, foreigners say this, but we found it to be true. They said, Americans live to work. She said, the French work to live. Now, I don't know if that's true. I've never been to France, but it struck me enough that I wrote it down and have kept it in my mind. It is easy to, to live to work. It, it is easy to have your life driven That does not enhance your having the helmet of hope guiding your thinking. And Satan is trying to get in your head. Lord, take these simple words. Speak them as you see the need in people's minds today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now go in peace to love and serve and enjoy the Lord.